You're listening to the Spice Larder podcast, a monthly conversation featuring artisan producers, chefs, bakers, historians, spice experts, and more. I'm your host, Julia Roberts, and I'll be inviting guests to join me to discuss everything from gingerbread and port to food trends, spices, plus culinary and social history. You can subscribe to the Spice Larder podcast via our various media channels or via platforms such as Spotify, Google or Apple Podcasts. To sign up to receive our regular updates and alerts, go to our website, gingerandspicefest.co.uk. My guest speaker in this episode is spice expert Ethan Frisch, co-founder of Burl Up and Barrel, a public benefit corporation who sells single-origin spices sourced and imported from their own global supply chains. A native New Yorker, Ethan describes himself as an entrepreneur and activist around food systems and social justice. Ethan has worked in kitchens as a cook and pastry chef. He's set up his own gorilla ice cream business and has also worked as a humanitarian aid worker. We start by hearing how Ethan first started out on his entrepreneurial journey as a spice expert. Thanks for having me. It's, it's a pleasure to talk to you. My career has bounced around in a lot of different fields, and, and I've been lucky enough to, to get to do a lot of different things. But I started uh, initially working in restaurants because I had been laid off. I was, uh, was working at a political foundation uh, in the middle of the financial crisis of 2008 and nine, and needed a job and found myself in a restaurant kitchen. I, I didn't really know what I was doing. I had never cooked professionally before. I didn't have any formal training, but I was a good home cook, and I'm a, a quick learner and I uh, got screamed at a lot in the uh, strong tradition of screaming at new people in restaurant kitchens. And I, I just kind of figured it out. Um, so I worked in restaurants for a few years in New York, had, had my ice cream company, an activist ice cream company, and then wound up moving to London for graduate school. I went to SOAS, got my master's uh, with the goal of, of being an aid worker. So I, I then wound up working in Afghanistan. I lived there for a few years, working for a big nonprofit. Uh, I worked for MSF for Doctors Without Borders in the Middle East and thought that my, that was the end of my career in food, my, my time working in restaurants, that that had been fun, but, but I wasn't going to find my way back to that. Um, and I'm now very happy to have proved myself wrong. Oh, that's incredible. A really exciting starting point to your career as an entrepreneur. Tell us a little bit about the Gorilla Ice Cream. That's fascinating. An ice cream activist. I don't think I've ever heard anyone describe themselves as that before. So, uh, right, it was a, an activist ice cream cart. Uh, I had been the pastry chef at a, a small restaurant on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, which had closed, and I'd been making a lot of ice cream there and, and uh, experimenting with a lot of interesting flavors and wanted to keep doing that, but also wanted to find a way to, to fold in my political science degree and my interest in international issues and, and conflicts in particular. Um, so my business partner on that project, who's also my business partner on Burlap and Barrel, uh, we sat down and said, wouldn't it be funny if we sold ice cream, but each ice cream flavor was inspired by the cuisine of a country dealing with a political issue or going through a revolution, or we could use ice cream to start conversations about, about global affairs. Um, as it turned out, uh, it didn't really work that well. <laughs> okay. People, people when, they want, when they're buying ice cream, they just want ice cream. They don't want to get a lecture about uh, <laughs> you know, the, the anti-colonial revolution in Cape Verde and Guinea-Bissau, um, which is what we were trying to talk to them about. 
so I, I would say uh, mixed results. The ice cream was really popular. We did pretty well. We, we donated 100% of our profits uh, to a street vendor advocacy organization in New York called the Street Vendors Project. Um, uh, so that was the other side of the activism was that in addition to using the ice cream flavors to talk about international issues, we were also donating all the profits. But, you know, it was it was a seasonal business selling ice cream from a cart in New York City. You can only do that for a few months. We were doing it in a rented restaurant kitchen overnight. It was not sustainable. But but what it was, uh, was an amazing introduction to entrepreneurship and to the sort of social entrepreneurship and kind of a, a blended model of social impact and business that having had that experience has now served us really well in building Burlap and Barrel. Yeah, right. Because I think in terms of sort of setting up a business, sort of one tends to have a vision of where it's going or not, but typically you do. And then as you start the journey, it doesn't always end up like that. And other doors open, doors shut, and other things unfold. And, and I sort of very much think that to sort of start to experience and grow, you've got to go through that process. You've got to start somewhere. You've got, I personally feel you've just got to get going. And it sounds like the activism and the ice cream has really been the sort of launch pad for getting onto Burlap and Barrel, which looks absolutely an incredible business, really exciting. So just tell us a little bit about it. So when it started and how it started, that'd be great, Ethan. Sure. Yeah, thanks. Um, it's, it's, been a, it's been a fascinating journey. We, we started about three and a half years ago, um, but really the idea came uh, even, uh, I'd say, three, two or three years prior. I, I was living in Afghanistan. I was doing a lot of work in really remote, rural, mountainous areas of the northeast of the country, a pro- province called Badakhshan, and came across a, a variety of cumin that grows wild in the mountains. I had never tasted anything like it. I, you know, I had worked in great restaurants in New York, including one of the best Indian restaurants in the U.S., uh, I thought I knew my way around a spice cabinet and then uh, started traveling and realized that I had no idea what I was talking about. And there was so much more diversity behind all of these ingredients that I had seen as sort of singular, I, you know, cumin was cumin was cumin. And then it turned out, actually, that's not true. And I started uh, essentially smuggling at home in duffel bags. It wasn't, it wasn't a business. It was just an ingredient that I was so excited about. Uh, I had to share it with my friends in the restaurant industry in, in New York. And, you know, one thing led to another. And eventually I, I sat down with Ori, my co-founder, and said, I, I think there's a business here. I think we could, we could do this. Um, but the realization that there were farmers growing interesting ingredients all around the world who didn't have access to international supply chains, who couldn't get their products to market. Um, and there were, were chefs or home cooks or uh, hobbyists or anybody else who would appreciate much higher quality spices, but had never had the opportunity to purchase them before. And that because of the unique skills that, that Ori and I brought to the table, uh, we, we were able to bridge that gap in a way that, that nobody else had before. Wow, it's incredible. So you started out with cumin, you shared the cumin love to those in the know, your friends, experts. <laughs> so what were the next steps? Because it's all very well sort of you know, enjoying the spice, loving it, and, and having one contact where you know you can import it. But how did you start sort of the map in terms of where next? Because there's a whole world of spice out there. Yeah, I mean, we pretty quickly theorized that if we could figure out how to import cumin from Afghanistan, which has got to be one of the most challenging places in the world to set up a new supply chain from, uh, we could probably figure out how to do something similar in other countries as well. Um, and I just started reaching out. Some of the uh, initial contacts were really just just luck uh, through friends who had lived in certain countries. I kind of 
put the word out that I was interested in, in starting a spice business and, and people started coming back to me and, and saying, Oh, I have another friend or I know someone who might be able to help. And so, um, through a Tanzanian American friend who'd been working on a direct trade coffee project in Tanzania, uh, I was connected with a spice growing cooperative in Zanzibar. Um, through a friend in NGOs, I was connected with a cardamom farmer in Guatemala. Afghanistan, Guatemala, and Zanzibar were really our three first partner farmers, our, our three first suppliers, and then started meeting people in Turkey and got connected with some people in Egypt, and, and we've built it out slowly uh, since then. Um, some of those decisions are based on particular spices that I, I, I love or I'm looking for or I think, I think we might be able to find a market for in the U.S., and others are really just, just luck, um, meeting a farmer, uh, getting to know a co-op, figuring out what they grow, and then bringing that back and, and sharing it with the network of chefs and putting it on our website and, and seeing what people like. So sort of what you're saying is that you've been reaching out, making contacts, finding spices, and then sort of seeing how that might appeal to your customers uh, once you bring it back to the States. Because, um, I mean, I'm not sure because I don't live in the States, but it, are there sort of preferences for certain spices out there? So do you know that, for example, black pepper will be a winner? Do you know that chili's going to work? And cumin, obviously. Have you sort of chosen to do with that? Or, or do you want to sort of educate and introduce new spices to your community? Yeah, it definitely winds up being a balance of the two. Um, I, I have spices that I love that are not really well known or not particularly popular across the US. And so finding ways to launch them, finding ways to, to educate customers about them, but, but to do it in a way that feels familiar and accessible and not, uh, not intimidating. Um, so there's some, definitely some of that. And uh, some of the spices that we carry now, uh, black lime from Guatemala, sumac from Turkey, urfa, black urfa chili from Turkey, those all fall in that category. Those are spices that I had worked with before um, and just had sort of a gut feeling that, uh, I don't know, these are, these are delicious ingredients. I, I think there is a market for them. Um, but, but ultimately, the, one of the challenges has been that uh, home cooks, but, you know, even professional chefs in the U.S. Uh, know very, very little about spices. Not, not necessarily how to use them. I think people know a fair amount about that, or some people know a fair amount about that. But they know almost nothing about the agricultural supply chain behind them. So... Uh, cinnamon, which which is one of the maybe the most iconic ingredient in the American pantry, in everything from you know apple pie to banana bread to you know American classic American <laughs> baked goods. I I don't know that most most Americans could could tell you that cinnamon is tree bark. I don't know that people could tell you what countries it comes from or how it's harvested or some of the differences in the in the different species that you can get. Um, th there's just no awareness. And, and likewise, black pepper on every dinner table, on every restaurant table in, in America. Uh, but how many people can tell you that it's a climbing vine with uh, little bunches like grapes and black pepper is actually a dried fruit. And um, there's, there's this, uh, this sort of mysterious backdrop to spices that, that people have not, uh, have not dug into. And, and it's not all their fault. <laughs> that information has not really been made available. And so that's a lot of what we do also. Clearly, you've got a really great sort of bit of educating to do to your customers and to the wider public. Ethan, how do you guys go about that? Because it's, it's a, a big topic to tackle. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's, uh, we started just by posting on social media, by kind of giving some of that background on our website, being able to explain 
through pictures and through personal stories to be able to show a, a photograph of a farmer in Indonesia harvesting cinnamon. I think a lot of the heavy lifting in that regard has been done by uh, the coffee industry, by the specialty chocolate industry. There is this awareness that those ingredients come from agricultural supply chains and, and people have, have, you know, have learned enough to develop preferences to say that they like coffee from one country over another country or uh, they understand a little bit more about the, the processes that go into those, into those kind of everyday flavors. So what we've uh, tried to do is extend that out to say like, you know, you know about coffee, now let's talk about spices, let's talk about cinnamon, let's talk about black pepper. And that has worked pretty well. It's wonderful, really wonderful. And so, uh, you know, you must have to talk a lot about sort of terroir and varieties because, of course, each climate and um, country soil type is going to produce a different variety of spice. It's, you know, there's a whole wealth of um, tastes and flavors out there. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. And, and that's my favorite part of the process is, is going to a country, uh, visiting a farm, tasting something that I've never tasted before, even, even if it's a variety or another species of something that I know quite well. I mean, black pepper is a great example of this. Chili peppers are likewise a great example where there are, there are not that many species. Black pepper is all one species. Chili peppers, there, there are two, sometimes three, but mostly two. Uh, but such a range of, of flavor and aroma. And so much of that has to do with exactly, as you mentioned, the terroir and the variety that they're growing, but also the post-harvest process, the expertise of the farmer. And that's the other aspect of it that I, I feel like I don't get to talk about as much as I'd like, um, is that so much of the quality of the product depends on having a farmer who's very, very good at what they do. Mm. Um, and in, in most cases, those farmers were selling their spices into the commodity market previously. They were uh, selling to a local a consolidator or a truck driver or uh, somebody who was taking their their beautiful product and mixing it with somebody else's that might not have been as good and that was getting mixed with more and more farmers' products so that anything that was special about the uh, about one farmer's crop is lost because it's all just been mixed together. Sure. So it's finding uh, customers who are excited by you know really high quality flavor. Um, and products and therefore sort of want to spend money with your company who's bringing in sort of the higher end of the spices as it were. Yeah exactly and and finding farmers ultimately that that's the hardest part of it. Most spice farmers are are not growing something that's distinctive enough for us and so uh, finding the right farmer to work with, being able to, to start a relationship with, which often involves going in person, spending time with them, um, visiting the farm, understanding their process, having them get to know get to know me and decide whether they want to work with me. Um, it really is about building a partnership with the right kind of farmer, somebody who has a little bit of an entrepreneurial hustle, who often has been dissatisfied with the commodity system um, and had been looking for a way around it, but had not found an import partner to work with on the other end. Um, so that's, that's it, it, as, well, as well as finding the right customers, it's also about finding the right partner. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a it's a big um, you know it's a big challenge for you. What I'm interested to know is once you found the um, the farmer, you've built the relationship, you think pretty much you can work together, and then you start to import the spice. How do you make it work or go through the sort of legal systems in terms of quality? And uh, I don't know what they are in the states, but presumably there's a legislation that food has to adhere to. So that's one of the ways that we support our partner farmers is by uh, taking care of their FDA registration, which is uh, 
the, the regulatory requirement to import food into the U.S. As an exporter in the country of origin, you have to be registered with the FDA. So we help with that. There's a whole uh, list of food safety tests that need to be conducted. And based on the results, you might need to sterilize or, or otherwise clean the product. And so we take care of all of that as well. And then the logistical challenges of, of moving usually a fairly small quantity, a few hundred kilos or up to a couple of tons from pretty remote, isolated areas of the world to, to New York City. Um, so, so that logistical process is pretty, pretty complicated. But uh, I think like with any entrepreneurial process, we've gotten it wrong a lot and uh, learned from our mistakes and figured it out and, and gotten incrementally better over the three, three and a half years that we've been in business. What do you think is the next sort of stage for Burlap and Barrel? So you're currently selling how many products? So we carry about uh, about 40 different spices, um, but that always changes a little bit, either uh, based on seasonality. Sometimes, you know, we'll, we'll sell out of a harvest of something and we won't be able to get it back until the next season. Um, but we're also always adding new spices and uh, we have a couple of new ones coming out in the next few weeks and the next few months. Uh, one that I'm particularly excited about is a spice called Amchur. Uh, so it's a traditional Indian ingredient uh, made from salted green mangoes that have been dried and ground into a powder. And it, it's, uh, it's tart and savory and it just sort of lights your tongue up. And so when I was in India a few weeks ago, a couple of months ago now in the beginning of March, we met with a, a, an amazing organic mango farmer uh, father and son team about six hours south of Bombay and made plans to to make Amshur together. So they're working on that now and hopefully we'll be able to bring in bring in a shipment in the next couple of months. That's incredible. Really great. So it sounds like your journey sort of from where you've been to where you are now is it sounds like what's really important to you is to bring every sort of part of yourself to your business so that you've managed to sort of assimilate all parts of your activism and social justice and your passion for food into one business um and i presume it probably doesn't feel like you're working i presume you're living out your sort of ethos and what you believe in would you advise it to other people to follow your dreams <laughs> um <I'm, laughs> i wish it didn't feel like i was working sometimes um i mean i think with with any entrepreneurial journey it's uh there are highs and lows and Sometimes uh, it feels like it's, it's um, running amazingly and smoothly and you're shocked by that. And sometimes it feels like you're banging your head against the wall over and over again. So in general, uh, I don't recommend it. <laughs> um, I mean, it, it really, it comes down to the, to the individual. If, if you're up for that kind of roller coaster, emotional, financial, uh, intellectual roller coaster, uh, there's nothing, nothing like it in the world. This is the best job I've ever had to be able to pay myself a, a decent salary uh, and do things I love and um, at least take a step towards changing international food systems, build relationships, build friendships with farmers all around the world, people I may not uh, have a whole lot in common with or may not really share a language with, uh, but to be able to have real deep relationships with those people is, it's such a gift. So as with anything, it's, it's you take the good with the bad and, and make a decision. Yeah. I'd love to be able to recommend to the listeners where to buy your spices, but unfortunately, they're not available out of the US at the moment. Is that right? That is. And, you know, we get asked about this pretty regularly, and it's always sort of a complicated answer. We can ship to other countries, and the reason that we don't is that we just feel like we can't provide the level of customer service that, that we can here in the US. 
shipping across the across the ocean is quite expensive. And then not to mention the lack of visibility into the postal service or uh, any import taxes or other things that people might be stuck with. So we're, we're looking at it and hopefully there will be a way to make it work sometime in the near future. But, uh, but at the moment we're, we're limiting ourselves to North America. Yeah, then that's fair enough. Um, so just what I wanted to ask you about actually was the fair trade movement and Sure. Sort of how you guys uh, sit with that because you're not fair trade registered. I don't know how the state uh, sort of sits with fair trade, but is is that have you got anything to say on it? Yeah, of course. I mean, so we are not fair trade certified. I think with with fair trade as with uh, many other certifications, um, they can be very expensive and very challenging for a small company like ours, or a, even more so a smallholder farmer. Uh, to get themselves registered fair trade, and that in a lot of ways, the fair trade regulations around the certification have been co-opted by larger companies that have the resources to set up plantation-style agriculture and meet the fair trade requirements in a in a pretty specific targeted way, and at the same time put smallholders out of business uh, who don't have the resources to get those same certifications. Um, we would love to be able to to help all of our partner farmers get fair trade certified. I have no doubt that that they would meet the requirements of the certification and likewise organic, likewise uh, Rainforest Alliance. But as a small company, it's, it's financially not really feasible. And, and, and uh, honestly, ultimately, I find it pretty limiting across different countries, different contexts, different individual situations that I feel a lot more comfortable making those decisions in a case, on a case-by-case basis rather than taking a set of regulations and trying to apply it globally. Yeah, yeah. And I think sort of your focus, obviously, with being spices that are single origin, sourced directly from small farms around the world, is sort of where you're at at the moment. Yep, exactly. Great. So the last question I've got for you, Ethan, is what is your favorite spice? Oh, my favorite spice. Uh, it's like like asking to me to pick a child. Um, no, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the the one that I, my, I really love is the wild cumin. Uh, it, you know, I have such a, a, a personal connection to Afghanistan. I, I lived there for several years. I met my wife there. And uh, the cumin just holds such a, a place for me in my memory and my uh, culinary repertoire. Um, the memories of driving through these mountains and part of the world I, I otherwise never would have been able to go to, stopping at little roadside restaurants uh, to have, you know, the, the rice and meat dish that they had made for the day or the little fried fish that they had pulled out of the river that morning. And I just have such a, such a, I'm so lucky to have those memories, have had those experiences and and the cumin, uh, the African cumin really stands for that for me. Sounds beautiful. And how does it look, um, when it's in the wild growing? So it's a kind of a scraggly, uh, it looks like a weed, um, it's, it grows way up in the mountains, uh, so it's a very short harvest season. Um, it's very cold, pretty rocky soil, uh, and the plant itself will get to be about knee-high, maybe a little bit higher, and towards the end of the sort of midsummer, it has these beautiful kind of lacy white flowers that are then pollinated, and each one turns into a cumin seed. It's a different species than the standard cumin, and so the, the seeds themselves look quite different. They're much smaller, much darker in color, um, really kind of pointy. Uh, at either end, um, and they have this incredible, almost uh, pine uh, floral aroma that's that's quite different from from the standard cumin. 
Well, thank goodness for all your fellow Americans that you found it and they're, they're enjoying it over there. So um, long may it continue and we wish you every success with your business and please do keep in touch with us. And it's been a real pleasure having you on as a guest, Ethan. Thank you for having me. It's been great to talk to you. It was fantastic talking to Ethan and hearing all about his passion and commitment towards changing international food systems to benefit both small and micro spice farmers around the world and also his customers. If you're listening in the States, you can visit the website burlapandbarrel.com and purchase any of their unique and beautiful spices online. If you're UK-based, sadly you cannot buy Ethan's spices right now in the UK, but you can visit our online store, The Spice Larder, where we have a range of exciting spices and spice blends sold by British artisans. Just go to www.gingerandspicefest.co.uk forward slash shop. You've been listening to The Spice Larder, a brand new podcast brought to you by the Ginger and Spice Festival. Thanks to everyone who took part in and helped produce this podcast. And if you don't know who we are, go to the About Us page via the website gingerandspicefest.co.uk. So you don't miss a show, subscribe to our podcast today. And if you like what you've heard, consider giving us a review via Apple or Google Podcasts as this really helps others find us. We regularly post news, features, recipes and competitions via our monthly e-bulletin. Sign up now by visiting our website homepage or emailing us at gingerandspicefest at gmail.com. Don't forget to tune in to next month's edition of the Spice Larder podcast. And until then, happy spicing. Spice Larder.